All right, turn your Bibles to Acts 18. I have to admit, that is one of my favorite hymns, especially that stanza talking about I was imprisoned and then his eye diffused a quickening ray and I rose and followed him. And uh, that was my experience uh, with the gospel is uh, grown up in church and heard the gospel and kind of thought I was a Christian because I, you know, believed all the things that they taught about. I'd always kind of just believed it because I'd been taught that. And then one day the gospel hit my heart. The Holy Spirit's work uh, was effective and I saw Christ for who he was, saw my need, asked for his forgiveness and said, Lord, I want to follow you. And that was all by the work of the Spirit and the work of Christ on the cross. And if you've not experienced that and you're like I was just kind of growing up in church, I urge you, run to Jesus. He is a faithful and a willing Savior. Amen? So we're in Acts chapter 18, verses 24 through 28. If you would stand for the reading of the Word of God, it says, And now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he had desired to cross into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we uh, look at these wonderful, wonderful people, Lord, seeing in them your work of grace what makes them wonderful is not them but the work of grace in them but we see an example of apollos see an example of aquila and priscilla and lord i pray that we would learn some things from them that would help us today we ask in jesus name amen all right you may be seated Uh, someone once wrote a humorous take on a pastoral search report pastoral search report is when a church is looking for a pastor They interview candidates or look at their resumes, and then they make recommendations to the church as to who they should hire. And someone took this and humorously imagined if men from the Bible were to go through that pastoral process, what they might say. And this is the pastoral search report. We do not have a happy report to give. We've not been able to find a suitable candidate for this church, though we have one promising prospect still. We do appreciate all the suggestions from the church members and have followed up on each one with interviews or at least and calling at least three references. The following is our confidential report on the present candidates. Adam, good man, but problems with his wife. Also, one reference told of how his wife and him enjoy walking nude in the woods. You under- Come on, folks. Noah, former pastorate of 120 years with no converts, prone to unrealistic building projects. Abraham, though the references reported wife swapping, 
The facts seem to show that he never slept with another man's wife, but did offer to share his own wife with another man. Think about that story. Joseph, a big thinker, but a braggart, believes in dream interpreting and has a prison record. Moses, a modest and meek man, but a poor communicator, even stuttering at times, sometimes blows his stack and acts rashly. Some say he left an earlier church over a murder charge. David, the most promising leader of all until we discovered the affair he had with his neighbor's wife. Solomon, great preacher, but our parsonage would never hold all his wives. Elijah, prone to depression, collapses under pressure. Elisha, reported to have lived with a single widow while at his former church. Hosea, a tender and loving pastor, but our people could never handle his wife's occupation. Deborah, female. Jeremiah, emotionally unstable, alarmist, negative, always lamenting things, and reported to have taken a long trip to bury his underwear in the banks of a foreign river. Again, if you remember these stories, it's like, oh, I see. Isaiah, on the fringe, claims to see angels in his church, has trouble with his language. Jonah, refused God's call into ministry until he was forced to obey by getting swallowed up by a great fish. He told us to fish, the fish later spit him out on the shore near here, so we just hung up. Amos, too backward and unpolished, with some seminary training he might have promise, but has a hang-up against wealthy people, might fit better in a poor congregation. John, says he's a Baptist, but definitely doesn't dress like one. He has slept outdoors for months on end and has a weird diet. He provokes denominational leaders. Peter, too blue-collar, has a bad temper, even known to curse, had a big run-in with Paul at Antioch, aggressive but a loose cannon. Paul, powerful CEO-type leader with a facet and a fascinating preacher. However, short on tack, unforgiving with younger ministers, harsh and has been known to preach all night. Timothy, too young. Jesus has had popular times, but once when his church grew to 500, he managed to offend them all, and his church dwindled down to just 12 people. Seldom stays in one place for very long, and of course, he's single. Judas, his references are solid, a steady plotter, conservative, good connections, knows how to handle money. We're inviting him to preach this Sunday. Sometimes we measure pastors by the wrong things. The Bible does have qualifications, and that ought to be our measure of a good pastor. But I think in Acts chapter 18, in Apollos, we do sort of have a picture of what a pastor should be. I think there's principles. Of course, we've already said there's not exact parallels because it was a time of transition, but I think there's a lot that we can learn. I think there's a lot we can learn from Aquila and Priscilla and how they helped Apollos as well. And so that's what we want to talk about, is the church needs growing pastors, working together with gracious people, filled with gospel power to accomplish God's mission. And we see that here. And you remember, this is a book of transitions, Acts, from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. And Luke gives us three stories connected that kind of help us see that transition. We see Apollos going back to Jerusalem, taking the Nazarite vow. We see Aquila and Priscilla. And then in chapter 19, at the beginning there, we see the disciples of John who become the disciples of Jesus. And so 
Some might actually see, and I thought I might just address this briefly, a mixed message in Paul's Nazarite vow and Aquila and Priscilla still attending synagogue. They're like, wait, you said transitions, but then why are Aquila and Priscilla still going to the synagogue? That's where they meet, a pause. And what about that Paul Nazarite vow thing? Why did he go back and practice a Jewish custom in the Old Testament? Well, let me give you a couple reasons that would help us not to think that they're going backwards instead of forwards, okay? First of all, Nazarite vow was a common expression of thanksgiving for Jews. You see, a Jew, being a Jew is not just a religious thing, it's also a cultural and community thing. If you look at the Old Testament, what you realize is that the Old Testament was designed to encompass every aspect of the Jew's life, to connect it to God. And so, he had grown up, Paul, Aquila, and Priscilla had grown up in a system where it was completely encompassed by this Jewish cultural um, thing. So being a Jew affected every part of your life. You grew up celebrating all the feast days, and when you wanted to give thanks, you took a Nazarite vow. So in one sense, the reason why you took a Nazarite vow is because as a Jew, that's how you showed thankfulness to God. And we talked about that when I went through that passage about how it shows his commitment and his thankfulness to God. It's kind of like if you were an American living in a foreign country and Thanksgiving rolls around, you'd want to celebrate. Maybe that country didn't even celebrate Thanksgiving, but you would. Why? Because you grew up celebrating Thanksgiving. It just seems right to do. So for Paul, it was sort of that way. When you wanted to be thankful, you just took a Nazarite vow. It's kind of what you did. And so that felt normal to him. And uh, Paul and Aquila and Priscilla also kept some cultural practice to maintain ministry to Jewish people. Uh, remember, the church is Jew and Gentile together, right? So he's still trying to reach Jews. Although his ministry is transitioning to a more Gentile ministry as it spreads out across the known world, he still wants to reach his people. And in 1 Corinthians 9, 19, he says, I made myself a servant to all that I might win all the more. To the Jews, I became like a Jew so that I might win the Jews. Those under the law, I became like under the law so that I might win those who were under the law. Now, he very clearly said in that passage, I am free from all men. But he kept a cultural connection to Jews in his life so that he could reach them for Jesus Christ. So taking a Nazarite vow would help keep that connection. Because a lot of his enemies were saying, oh, you know, he's turned against his, his upbringing. He's turned against his community, his culture. He's turned against the old covenant. But Paul's like, no, I believe in the new covenant. What God promised in the old covenant, God has fulfilled in the new covenant. That's what I believe. So these little acts of connection would help him maintain a relationship and keep his enemies from trying to accuse him of hating his heritage. No, he still loved the Jews and wanted to reach them for Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, he said, if it were possible, I would become accursed, condemned to hell for the sake of my own countrymen. He loved them very much. Then we go and started talking about Apollos. Remember, he was a Hellenistic Jew from Alexandria, Egypt. Uh, he was Greek-speaking, adopted Greek culture, but he still was a practicing Jew. We find out from this passage he was intelligent, he was eloquent, and we know from later in life, he kept a connection with Paul. And we called him the Old Testament Believer Plus. Remember that? Uh, so he had faith in the Messiah, as an Old Testament believer would have. By faith, they believed in God's promise of the Messiah. 
but he knew a little bit more information than Abraham did in that he knew who that Messiah was. He had been exposed to Jesus, the name of Jesus Christ through the preaching of John's apostles, those who had followed John and spread out across the known world preaching. And so he knew that Jesus was the Messiah, but he did not know that Jesus had died, was buried, and rose again. He didn't know the fulfillment of the new covenant. He didn't understand about the giving of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church. And so that's what Aquila and Priscilla helped him understand more fully. So people wonder in this passage, so what in the world is this baptism of John? I'm going to try to describe it as quickly as I can, okay? Um, but let's think about, as we look at this passage, how we need growing pastors, we need gracious people, and gospel power, okay? So the baptism of John, there's two passages that are really key. They're given in the Old Testament, they're repeated in the New Testament, and they help us to understand what this baptism was all about. Malachi 4, 5, and 6. He says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Elijah was a prophet that tried to turn God's people back to God, right? So someone's going to come that's like Elijah who's going to try to turn people back to God before God visits them. The day of the Lord is the day of God's visitation. This is the day when God works among his people again, okay? So now the other passage is Isaiah chapter 4 and verse 3. Uh, and here again, he's referring to the one that would come before Messiah to prepare the way. And he says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, these are repeated in the New Testament, there in Luke 1.17 and Matthew 3. It says of John the Baptist, he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and uh, the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So, the Bible says that John the Baptist was the one that fulfilled that passage in Malachi, Right? And then he gives Matthew 3, which connects us to the fulfillment of Isaiah 40, verse 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this was he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Now listen, prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his pathway straight. Of course, this is common practice when a king was going to conquer a city or after it had just been conquered they would oftentimes before his royal retinue his his whole gang of advisors and stuff came uh, they would take and they would level out the low places and knock off the high places basically they would make the pathway smooth so that the king could be ushered in to the city that had been conquered or if, it, if he was away and was coming back or something like that and so the Bible says that that's who John the Baptist was. He was the one that was preparing the way for the king. Now, everyone tell me, who is the king? Jesus is the king. And so, who was John the Baptist preparing for? He was pre preparing for Jesus, okay? So, why in the world was he baptizing? Well, he was preparing the way of the Lord. Now, there was a common practice... Um, 
let me go back. He would be a prophet like Elijah who would preach and there would be a large-scale repentance in preparation for the day of the Lord. That's what I think the hearts of the fathers to the children and vice versa. It's talking about there's going to be a societal large-scale repentance that's going on in preparation for Messiah's uh, ushering in as king. So this repentance would be anticipation, preparation for the coming of the Messiah. So John the Baptist would preach like Elijah to prepare for the coming of the Messiah, and this would usher in a great work of God. So in John's day, whenever a Gentile was converted to Judaism, he was taken and dunked into what's called a mikvah. A mikvah is a baptismal tank, we might call it. But basically, it was a receptacle with a large amount of water, and they generally would be dunked in by simply climbing into it, and they just dunk you straight down and coming straight back up, okay? And what this was symbolizing is, hey, you're a dirty Gentile, pagan through and through, and God doesn't accept you the way that you are. So we're going to wash away your Gentileness, wash away your sin, and you're going to convert to the God of Israel. So this was all symbolistic in order to show that they're getting rid of their Gentileness and coming into, uh, into and becoming Jewish or be believing in Judaism. Okay. So when John the Baptist came along and started preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, he's saying, we're preparing for the king. We're preparing for the work that's the day of the Lord. We want to usher in God's work. So you need to be baptized. Now what this was saying to the average Jew is, you all think you're, you're okay because you're Jewish, that you've kept the law. But I'm here to say you're no better than a Gentile. You're full of sin, and you need to be cleansed from your sins. You need to repent because the kingdom of God is coming. And so this was somewhat offensive. That's why the leaders didn't, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't much care for John the Baptist. Because he would look at them, shake his bony finger, and say, you need to repent. No, we keep the law. No, you need to repent. You need to be cleansed from your sin. Messiah's coming. So, needless to say, not a real popular preacher in his day. But the average people would come and hear him preach, and they heard the ring of truth in what he said. And they began to come, and they would be baptized and say, I'm repenting. I want Messiah. I want Messiah. So that's what John's baptism was all about. And so it was not Christian baptism. It was something completely different. And the Apollos had probably been baptized into John's baptism, much like the disciples we read about in chapter 19, but he had not yet experienced Christian baptism. And in chapter 19, we know that the other disciples of John were, in fact, were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. It doesn't say specifically that Apollos was, but we believe that probably was, because if you go back to Acts chapter 2, when the church was birthed, that's what everyone was doing. <laughs> they were baptized immediately after they believed the gospel. So, but understanding all this, let's understand a few things from this passage. Let's look at it from the angle of seeing Apollos as um, a person who was a pastor. Uh, here he was preaching, was not yet converted to New Testament Christianity. But in a sense, he was acting sort of like a pastor. And let's see some things in his life that I think are good for us to think about, especially me as a pastor, Okay. I think we see some principles here, and the first one is this. A growing pastor works hard to know and communicate God's word. It says here that he was eloquent, okay? Um, as a matter of fact, he says, uh, eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures. 
Man, what a wonderful, wonderful description of a person who preaches the word of God. Now, the thing about the word eloquent, it's kind of hard because it can be taken two different ways. The Greek word can mean that he spoke well or he understood well. And depending on the context, it can mean either. Here's the problem. In this context, it really could mean other, uh, either. As a matter of fact, it really could mean both. And I think it probably does because he combines it with the phrase, and he was mighty in the scriptures. So what is it trying to say? Is that he knew the scriptures well, and he preached them well. I kind of broke it down into three, three thoughts. He was competent in his understanding, he was capable in his explanation, and he was compelling in his application. He was competent in his understanding. He, was, he understood the scriptures. Most likely in Alexandria, where there's a large number of Jews, he was taught by a rabbi and understood the Old Testament scriptures. And there he applied himself very well. He wanted to understand what God said about himself in the Old Testament. So he was diligent to understand the word of God. This is true for every preacher. Now keep in mind, this sermon is going to be mostly preached to me and then to you to help me be what I should be, okay? So you're like, hey, now you know how we feel. <laughs> Sometimes I want to get up and preach to you, pastor. It's like, well, I get a chance to preach to myself. And uh, I tell you, this week it was both a blessing and it was convicting <laughs> because there are things I want to do better at. But nevertheless, these are things that a good pastor, a good preacher ought to be. And he ought to work hard at knowing and communicating the word of God. <clears throat> Here, Apollos was diligent to understand the Old Testament scriptures. And so it was described as being mighty in the scriptures, powerful in the scriptures. It reminds me of what Paul says to second, in 2 Timothy 2.15. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Rightly dividing means to cut it straight or to cut it accurately. So here it says that there's some things that a preacher ought to be. First it says, he preaches for the approval of God, not man. Now, notice what it says here in 2 Timothy 2.15. And you can turn there if you'd like. He says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. And here's the thing is, preachers like for people to think that they preach well. But the fact is, is ultimately, the person who decides if my preaching is good or bad is God. Because we know from 2 Timothy that people oftentimes want preachers to tickle their ears, it says. They'll have itching ears desiring them to be tickled. People like to hear things that they makes them feel better about themselves. And preachers preach things that sometimes are convicting, hopefully often convicting, but hopefully also filled with grace and hope for change in the power of the Spirit. But he says, we have to be approved of God. At the end of the day, the person who I really want to think I preached well on a Sunday is God. That he says, you preached my words. That's what I said, and that's what you said. That's how I want to be known. Approved by God. He says you need to be diligent in it. We ought to be diligent in our pursuit of understanding. I make no bones about the fact that I spend a large amount of time in my Bible studying the Word of God. 
You say, well, shouldn't there be a lot of other things you're doing? Well, I do a lot of those other things, but I do believe a large part of my time ought to be in getting in the Word of God and understanding it well so that I can communicate it well to you. Because it really matters. Because ultimately, what I think about things won't help you. But what God thinks about things will help you tremendously. And so I do spend a lot of time in the Word studying. And I do try to get in there, get deep, and really understand what God is trying to say. Because I want to know it for me, because I need it. I want to do it. Uh, I want to obey God's Word. And so I want to know it for me, but I also want to be able to help you understand it. By the way, not just preachers should spend time in the Word, you should spend time in the Word. Because you need to be feeding yourself as well. Uh, Sunday dinners here at Faith Baptist Church, and I mean by the preaching, are awesome, I hope. <laughs> but you know what? You need to be feeding yourself throughout the week too. You need to be having good, healthy meals in the Word every single day, spending time with Him. He says, be diligent to be approved of God because a worker who doesn't will be ashamed. In other words, failure to do this brings shame. It's a shameful thing for a preacher who won't spend time in the Word, preparing to preach. And then it says we must be accurate. He says, rightly dividing the Word of truth. That means cutting it straight. Now, let me ask you a question. If you had to have surgery, wouldn't you want a doctor that cut it straight? I know I would. Uh, wouldn't you want someone that knew their craft? If you were going to have someone remodel your home, wouldn't you want someone who was skilled at carpentry? I'm going to have my home rewired. Wouldn't you want someone who was skilled at electrical work? Yeah, the, th the fact is, we always want skilled people. I mean, I even want skilled people to put my Subway sandwich together. I'm glad they're sandwich artists. I, I really want them not just to look pretty, but I want them to be accurate. So here's the thing. God has called the pastor to make sure that he gets it right. Now, let me just say this. It's not that hard to look at a text and find something to say. You know what's really hard? It's finding for sure what God said. I mean, I could take a, I mean, the old saying used to be that a pastor can take a, take a passage and take a fit. <laughs> I mean, he could just go to town on anything. But that's not my goal. My goal in preaching is not just to have something inspiring or something challenging to say, but to tell you what God is saying in that passage so you know what God wants for your life. Because I can't change your life, but God can. I can't help you obey, but God can. I don't even know in my own person what it is I'm supposed to do. Only God knows. So we both got to go to him. So they have to be competent in their understanding, but they also have to be capable in explanation. He was mighty. He was impacting people. As a matter of fact, if you remember Corinth, they had a little issue because some were saying, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Jesus. Now, what was happening is kind of people were choosing their favorite preachers and, and kind of doing some hero worship. Now, there was one of those three that's okay. If you want to hero worship Jesus, you're on the right path. But Paul's like, no, you don't want to worship me. And Apollos, I think, felt the exact same way. As a matter of fact, what we'll find later on is that Paul said, I, I tried to get Apollos to go to Corinth, but he wouldn't leave at this time. Now, it could be he was at Ephesus and he was having a wonderful ministry. He said he was unwilling at this time to leave. But some believe that the reason why is because he says, listen, I've already had problems in Corinth with people trying to become worshipers or followers of Apollos. I don't want none of that. I want them to be followers of Jesus. So I think I'm just going to stay away for a while. If so, wow, what a tremendous humility he had. Uh, but 
Here's the thing. Apollos was popular most likely because he had the ability to not only understand the scriptures, but then to teach that to people. He communicated it well. Now that's something as a pastor I tried to do all the time. Try to think through how can I say this to best help the people in our church. So in one sense we have to understand the word of God, but in another sense we have to understand the people of our church and what would best help them. By the way, that's something you can't get from a TV preacher or an internet preacher. You can't get a pastor who knows you, who knows your community, knows your heart, and preaches to you. But he's also compelling in his application. By the way, let me say this. If uh, you listen to internet preachers and stuff on top of coming to your local church, that's just fine. I say get as much of the word of God in your heart as you can. Just don't replace it. Because no one can replace your church family or the pastor that God has put in your local church. But he's also compelling. Uh, we see that he powerfully refuted later on in the passages. Uh, he had the ability to preach the word of God in such a way as to really encourage and have a sense of urgency and a sense of weightiness to what he was preaching so that people responded. In 2 Timothy 2.14, Paul tells Timothy, when you're preaching, remind your people of these things. Command them before God not to strive about words to no profit to the ruin of the hearers. He says, listen, when you preach the word of God, compel them with the word of God to act and to be urgent and to respond to the word of God. I hope that I do that. One of the reasons I have the live it out portion of my message is because I want to give you real steps you can take, real actions that you can do in response to the word of God. It says in verse 24 that he was mighty in scriptures. Of course, this is the word for powerful. It's the word dunamis, so uh, people connect that to the word dynamite. He could powerfully teach the word of God. And the question then is begged. I don't know, maybe you didn't think of this, but I thought of this. Do you think Apollos was a better preacher than Paul? Hmm. I mean, there were people that when they heard him both preach said, yeah, give me Apollos. I like Apollos. You ever think about that? Now, this is what I want you to, to gather from this. <clears throat> the church benefited both from the ministry of Paul and the ministry of Apollos, both Ephesus and Corinth, by the way. And so here's the thing is, sometimes we kind of connect with certain preachers for different reasons. Maybe we like their style of preaching. And I admit, I listen to different preachers, and there's some I really enjoy listening to. In other words, that are good, they're accurate, it's true what they're saying, but I just don't maybe connect with them just quite as well. But what I, what I love about this is it takes all kinds, right? Paul had a certain style and a certain way, but it was true. And the church needed it. And Apollos was probably more of a silvery-tongued orator who could really, you know, he was a wordsmith who could really uh, capture people's attentions. Paul was probably more of a simplistic preacher. As a matter of fact, there's a couple passages that kind of uh, talk about this. In 2 Corinthians 2.1, Paul described himself as not having excellence of speech. He said, I'm not going to impress you with my word choices and the way that I say things. I'm just going to give you the straight word of God. 
It's going to be simple, but it's going to be powerful and truthful, and that's how I'm going to give it. He says in 2 Corinthians 10.10, he says the Corinthians had accused him of being weak physically and that his speech was contemptible. They probably were in love with, with people who were trained in rhetoric. They had the ability to really capture people's imaginations with what they said. Their, their, their speaking really was uh, just captivating. He says, but when I came to you, I didn't preach like that. Uh, matter of fact, you said that my physical appearance was weak and unimposing. He's like, you're this little weak guy, and you don't even speak that well. But this is what Paul said in Galatians 1. But I made known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached to me was not according to man. I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but it came through revelation of Jesus Christ. He said, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You see, Paul was concerned about one thing. I don't want them to walk away talking about how good of a speaker I am. I want them to walk away talking about how great a Savior we have. And that's one of the things that makes a great preacher. He makes much of Jesus. Now, finding better ways to communicate is a good thing. But one thing Paul had on Apollos is Apollos learned the gospel through Aquila and Priscilla. And later on, I think, under the ministry of Paul. But you know what Paul had on him? He spent three years in Bible college with Jesus as his teacher. Three years in the Arabian desert. He says in Galatians that he didn't receive it from man. He didn't even receive it from the preaching of the apostles. God had chosen him with, with inspiration and divine revelation to actually give him the gospel firsthand. He went out to the Arabian desert for three years shortly after he was converted. And there, Jesus taught Paul himself. Now, I don't know about you. I had some good professors, but nobody would be like Professor Jesus. He would be the best. And he doesn't even have to have a doctorate. <clears throat> so, a growing pastor works hard to know and communicate God's word. Number two, a growing pastor strives to teach accurately. And I've already kind of talked about this, but notice the words that he says. <clears throat> Instructed in the way of the Lord, fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. The things of the Lord, or the way of the Lord, again, is referring to those Old Testament passages, make way for the way of the Lord. <clears throat> now, what he did understand, he taught accurately. He just needed more instruction. So a growing pastor needs to be biblically accurate, and he needs to be balanced. Paul said he did not keep anything from them, but he preached unto them the whole counsel of God. So that is my goal. Now, you say, but pastor, you preach so slowly, you're never going to get through the whole Bible. That may be true, but I'll give you as much as I can. You, you see, when I go to preach a message, there's three things I keep in mind before I prepare, as I prepare. I have three questions, and some of you know what they are already. I ask myself these things. Number one, what does it say? What does God's words actually say? Number two, what does it mean? And third, why does it matter? And so my goal is to say, what is it that God said? Because I want to say what God says. 
What does it mean? So when I study, I study the background, the context. I look through other parts. I looked at it doctrinally. I looked at it from Old and New Testament. I look at it from a lot of different aspects. Why? Because I want to know that I know that this means this. If I'm going to say God means this, I want to make sure I'm getting it right. I'm cutting it straight. I'm accurate. And so then, thirdly, I want to say, why does this matter? In other words, if God said this, what should we do about it? How should we respond to the Word of God? And that's the application. And every biblical preacher ought to strive for those three things. Now, uh, when I go to prepare to preach, I actually have a much longer list of things I go through, looking at it from different angles, but that's the basis of how I prepare. And by the way, that's why I sometimes tend to give a lot of background information. Some people think it's really boring and say, oh, I don't need to know all that. But let me say something. The reason why I give it is because I want you to know that what I'm saying about this passage is accurate. And, and I'm basing it on all the factors that go in to understanding. All the things that might influence how we read that text, I want you to know. So that you know that he's like, well, where are you coming up with this thing? Well, I'm not pulling it out of a hat. I'm pulling it out of an understanding of what is happening. And so that includes understanding geographically and culturally and, and in the, the historically what is going on at the time. So that's why I give you some of these things. So it brings to bear an understanding when we read it. But thirdly, a growing pastor boldly preaches the gospel. I love how it says this. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately. And then uh, jump down. Um, verse 26. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. So he spe spoke boldly. Now, what I love about this <laughs> Uh, what he says about this boldly, excuse me, the word boldly means to speak freely, to hold nothing back. It means to speak without restraint. Now, here's one of the hard things that a pastor does. Sometimes when I'm preaching to a passage, I know it addresses issues that people in our church may be struggling with. If you ever said to yourself, oh, the pastor just preached that because he knows my situation. That's not true at all. But I will tell you, there's been a few times I've like, oh no, that passage deals with this, and so I'm going to have to deal with it. And because I love people, I don't want to be offensive. I don't want to drive people around. Believe it or not, I don't try to hack anybody off. I really don't. I, I, you know, I'm not like a, a jerk who just wants to make people angry. But the fact is, is when the Bible deals with things, we have to deal with them, right? There's been times where I've been tempted. I, I don't think I'm going to preach that because I know brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so, they're not going to like that. But then I thought, whose approval are you seeking? Approved unto God, approved unto God. And so I preach it. But let me tell you this. There are times where inside I'm crying, and sometimes I'm actually screaming inside because I'm like, oh, please, Lord, please, please don't let them take this the wrong way. I love them. Help them to understand this truth. That I, I only say it because I love them. Love them. And I do. 
The truth is, and, and, and I, I'm not the kind of guy that says, well, I won't talk to someone about something personally, but I'll just preach it from the pulpit. You know, kind of like when you're at work and they send an email to everyone, but you know they're talking about one person. <laughs> I don't do that. I'd rather just come and talk to you. But the fact is, is oftentimes those things are in Scripture, and whose benefit are they for? Everyone's, right? Who knows who other person may be struggling, other persons who may be contemplating a decision that this truth would help them make the right decision. And so I, I preach with a heart of love, but I have to speak boldly. I can't hold anything back. And how do, how do you get this boldness? There's, there's two things I think of why we can speak boldly. One is we are confident in the content of Scripture. You know why I can speak boldly? Because I believe this word is true. Do you believe that? I believe this has the power by the Holy Spirit to transform everyone's life. I believe that it's inerrant, it's inspired, it's authoritative, and because of that, I can preach. And by authoritative, understand this, it is the, it is the final authority for our faith and practice. Anything that has to do with life and godliness, every aspect of your life. Now, the Bible doesn't speak to every single situation of your life. One of my children called me recently and asked me, hey, I'm thinking about buying a car. You think I should buy a Honda? And some of you are thinking, don't buy a Honda. Some of you are thinking, you got to buy a Honda. You know what the Bible doesn't tell me if I, is if I should buy a Honda or a GM or a Ford. It doesn't tell me those things. But where the Bible does speak, it speaks authoritatively. And it speaks to most of the aspects of our life. And the truth is, is often, every day we're making decisions about whether we're going to choose what God says about things or what the world says about things or how we feel about things. That's why we need the Word of God. We have to be confident in the sufficiency of Scripture. But then we also have to be courageous in our delivery. He told the Ephesian leaders in Acts 20.18, you know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner, and this is Acts 20.18 if you wanted to uh, look it up. You know from the first day how I came to Asia and what manner I lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was useful, nothing that was helpful. It says, but I proclaimed it to you, and I taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. That was his gospel message, repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. But then on top of that, what did Jesus say? Teach them all things whatsoever I have commanded you, right? So Paul says, I didn't keep back anything was helpful. Everything that Jesus said to do, I told you to do. I just preached the word completely, without reservations. He was confident in the content of Scripture, and he was courageous. Be thankful you have a pastor who's willing to speak courageously. Now, Sometimes people get on hot-button issues, and they I wish you'd talk more about this and more about that. Well, I remember, I'm trying to be approved by God, so I'm going to preach the word. I want to do so boldly. I don't want to hold anything back. Paul told Titus in 2.15, speak these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority, and let no one despise you. And probably they despise him for his youth, but they may have despised him as Timothy. You youngin, what do you think you're doing preaching those things to me? And Paul said, don't you let him scare you, Timothy. You keep on preaching the word. You rebuke, you exhort, you tell them this is what God says. When they're doing wrong, you challenge them. When they do right, you encourage them. And you keep on preaching the truth and don't stop. 
In Titus chapter 1 and verse 9, he tells the elders should hold fast to the faithful word as it is has been taught, so that they might be able to, by sound doctrine to exhort and convict those who contradict it. He says, you better know the word of God, and then you better tell the word of God. Preach it, teach it, share it, live it. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he was a pastor in Ephesus, he says he should charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Don't give heed to fables and endless genealogies and disputes which cause uh, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is from faith. Now, the purpose of this commandment is love out of a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. But some have strayed from this. They've turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what the things that they say or the things that they affirm. He's saying, hey, listen, when you preach and teach, there are going to be some people who try to contradict the truth. You set them straight. You tell them, stop it. Stop teaching bad doctrine, and you preach good doctrine. He said, don't get carried away with all these side issues that are unimportant. He talks about some of them, that they were endless fables and genealogy. They got involved in all kinds of uh, crazy additions to the gospel. And he says, listen, it's destroying their faith, but you preach the things that it will strengthen their faith. And then you courageously defend the gospel. Look at verse 28. And this is, of course, after he had become a true New Testament Christian. It says he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly. Vigorously, you might even say he fiercely defended the gospel. Now, when he says he refuted, this is a great word. It'd be a picture of this. Let's say that this was false teaching. This is what the Judaizers were teaching as being the weight of God. But he knew the gospel, the true weight of God. He says, this is what I want you to do, Apostle. I want you to take those and do this with it. It literally means to cast it into the dirt. Bring it from its position and throw it down into the mud. It means to utterly obliterate those arguments with truth. Now, I'm not saying be mean and cruel, because what is he using here? He's not using personal attacks. He's using the truth of God's word. He says, but when they speak falsehoods, Apollos took God's truth, gospel truth, and by it refuted it, so their arguments just went down into the dirt. I'll get that pen later, by the way. <laughs> he, re he was refuting it courageously, passionately. We have to speak boldly. But number four, we have to be passionate about discipling people. I'm not going to spend much time here. You know how we feel about discipling here at Faith Baptist Church. Let me just say this. Be involved in not just coming and hearing the Word of God, but find other avenues of learning at Faith Baptist Church. We have Sunday school groups. Not only that, but we have small groups. Get involved. The small group has this wonderful dynamic of not only moving beyond just teaching Scripture. By the way, what is our philosophy of preaching and teaching? It's not informational. It's transformational. When we preach the gospel, we're not just trying to fill your head so you can walk around saying, I know lots. We're trying to give you truth so that the Holy Spirit will transform your life. We believe in transformational truth at Faith Baptist Church. But in a small group, you have this wonderful culture where you can share what's going on in your life and apply the truth, and people can help you apply that truth and make real change. And then they'll encourage you and pray for you as you make those changes. It's wonderful. It says he was fervent. It means, it's a word for boiling water. It means he was enthusiastic. He had burning zeal as he taught the word of God. 
Romans chapter 12 tells us we shouldn't be lagging in diligence, but we should be fervent in spirit. Let me tell you something. We should get more excited about Jesus, growing in Jesus and helping others grow in Jesus than we ever do about KU making it to the finals. By the way, they did if you didn't know. Okay, I love KU, I love the Chiefs, but here's the thing is we should get way more excited about Jesus and what he's doing in our lives and the lives of others, right? We should be enthusiastic. We'll stand up and cheer at a ball game and come to church and be like, is that all you got? <laughs> is there anything more? Listen, we got to be enthusiastic. We got to come with as much enthusiasm for the things of God. In our singing, we got to be enthusiastic. In our engagement with the, all the parts of the service, we ought to be enthusiastic. And it says that here that he vigorously refuted. Uh, let me go back. Uh, verse 27, that he, when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. Through God's grace, they had come to the faith in the gospel, and he was able to help them build on that gospel foundation to follow Jesus. I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to... Will you allow me to finish this? I'm going to really hustle up, okay? Um, so discipling people, humble and teachable. I don't need to say much about this. He was a humble guy. Here he was preaching powerfully, mighty in scriptures, and Aquila and Priscilla, a couple came along and said, hey, can we talk to you more about this? Yeah, sure. They explained to him the way of the gospel more fully, and he changed. Listen, pastors need to be humble and teachable. Uh, a pastor who won't listen to those around him that are investing the word of God into him is not worth the salt. The fact is, and let me say this, don't get into hero worship. Don't you worship any preacher because they are just men. You make much of Jesus. Christ is all. All we do is stand up and talk about what God already said. <laughs> uh, sometimes you've probably heard me say, some people will occasionally say, oh, that was a very good sermon. Thank you, pastor. And I appreciate those things. And what I say a lot of times is, like, it's only good because God said it. <laughs> I just get to talk about it. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? If it's good, it's because it's transformative. It's, it's because of God said it, saying it. It's, it's the, tr the Spirit of God applying it, not because of me. So we have to be careful. A, a pastor should be humble and approachable, and I hope I am. And if I'm not, come and talk to me. Now, let me do say this. Sometimes people have some very particular views and they try to convince me of their very, you know, kind of their, what I call soapbox issues. And by the way, we all got them, including preachers. And the Bible gives us freedom to feel differently about certain things. And sometimes people come in and say, well, no, this is the way it is. This is the way, you have to believe this. And then I'll say, no, but let me show you the scriptures over here. And I'll share other scriptures to kind of say, I'm not sure that I agree with you there. And then people have walked away and said, well, he just won't listen to what I'm saying. He's just unteachable. Okay, that's not fair, Right? And by the same token, there are certain things that I have to be cautious that I can say, the Bible gives freedom for, different, for believers to feel differently about this. I can't demand that you agree with me on those things. Uh, now, I might try really hard to convince you of those things, but I can't demand it. So just be careful. Just because your preacher won't change, change to your soapbox issue, don't think he's not teachable, because that's not necessarily a fair. But if you get a man who sits in an ivory tower and won't listen to anybody and thinks that he's basically God's gift to the church... Stay away from that church, because we are just men, and if anybody tells you different, they're crazy. I'm just going to say it. I've met preachers, I'm like, 
you're crazy. You need to get out of the ministry. You think way too highly of yourself. Okay, enough about that. <laughs> By the way, I do think Apollos, I do think Apollos was a humble man too because like I said, it seemed like he was reticent to go back to Corinth, I think because they were, they were making a big deal like, oh, this is my guy. Apollos is my guy. And he's like, no, I'm not getting into that, guys. No way. There's one person you ought to be all about is Jesus. Make much of him, okay? So uh, the last thing is uh, Christ-centered, gospel-saturated, and spirit-filled. Now, here's the, here's the awesome thing. is, So Apollos was doing a lot of really amazing things here. But you know what? He was not yet a New Testament Christian. Now, if he was doing all these things, preaching boldly and, and, and fervent spirit, and he was teaching accurately what he knew, though he didn't know the full story until Aquila and Priscilla, imagine what this guy was like after he got the Holy Spirit. Man, he was amazing. And it says that he powerfully refuted though, uh, and defended the gospel, and that he greatly helped the church at Corinth. I tell you what, it doesn't matter how good of a pastor you are, if, you do, if you're not gospel-saturated, if you're not Christ-centered, and if you're not spirit-filled, you're not going to do anybody any good. By the way, that's true for every person. You want to be a good dad? You need to be filled with the gospel. You need to be spirit-filled. You got to be Christ-centered in your life. You want to be a good mom, a good employee, a good friend, good anything, it's going to have to be this. And, and the fact is, and I just want to say one thing in, in closing. I'm going to hit this from a little bit different angle, and it's this angle. Apollos had a lot going for him. He was a very religious guy, understood a lot of Bible, and even believed in God. But he was not a New Testament believer. Now, what I fear is this. And by the way, when he did, when he heard the gospel, evidently God was, was already working. When he heard the truth from Aquila and Priscilla, boom. He got the whole package. He got the Holy Spirit. He became part of the, the church. And he embraced the new covenant versus the old. He knew that Jesus died, was buried, and that he rose again. He got the whole story. It's awesome. I do fear, though, there are some people in local churches that grew up, and they know the Bible, and they believe in God, and they know a lot of good things. And they're even moral people, but they're not yet genuine believers in Jesus Christ. And it would break my heart that in eternity I'd find out that there were people that sat here at Faith Baptist Church who went through all the motions, seemed to know all the right answers to the questions, but they weren't genuine believers. And they missed heaven because they didn't cling to Christ. I hope that isn't you. If you want to talk about it, I would love to talk to you more about it. If you want to find out ways you can look at Scripture and it proves whether or not you're a genuine believer, the Bible does that in wonderful ways. Please come and talk to me. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this church. Thank you for the impact of your word and your spirit right here. God, my prayer is that you would help me to be a good pastor, a good preacher. God, I know I fail. There, there, there are times in which, God, you convict me, and I, Lord, I know only by your grace can I be what you want me to be. I'm just going to cling to Christ. I'm going to trust in the work of the Spirit to transform me into what I ought to be. God, I pray that you would help uh, our church um, to appreciate good preaching. God, help the people to really get a hunger and a thirst for good preaching, Bible preaching, deep preaching, 
accurate preaching. God, I pray that they would get in the word themselves. God, I pray that they would appreciate the time that goes into not, and it's not just me, just the other leaders, the teachers who teach on, on Sunday, uh, those who teach Wednesday Bible studies, uh, men and women who preach and teach the word of God and put their heart and soul into it. God, I pray that you would encourage their hearts and help our church people to appreciate it, to get a hunger for it. And even, even to, to, to serve others in ministry. Uh, Lord, we know that there in Acts chapter 6, you said, hey, the leader said, we've got to give ourselves to the preaching of the word, the ministry of the word, and, and studying, or in prayer. Prayer in the ministry of the word. And so, God, you brought people, servant leaders, who were able to take care of the practical needs of the church so that they could spend their time in the word and prayer. God, I'm thankful for everyone that does that. I pray our church people get a hold of the importance of serving so that we can have strong ministry of the word. I pray all this in Jesus' name with thanksgiving that, Lord, I've seen this happen so much in our church already. Just pray that you continue that work in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for your patience. Remember, as you go out, if you like to write down one of those model, uh, mottos or sayings for that, make sure and grab that. Spring Spruce Up list, uh, list is right there. So have a great rest of your week, and make sure and get in the Word this week and grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus, okay? We're dismissed.